Good afternoon, church. We went from such a glorious exaltation to such a silence. It's a little bit awkward, right? Make sure we'll fix that next time. Well, it is my joy and privilege to see you worshiping together. Uh, there is no place really on earth I would rather be on Sunday afternoon than with you. And I'm sure it's mutual and we're growing into trusting one another and trusting the Lord in that. And it's, it's a joy just to worship, joy just to be around, joy to see each other grow, supply uh, what we need in our faith. And it is my privilege to serve you in this little um, way of preaching the Word of God. Preaching of the Word of God is very important, key, fundamental for the church. It's not it. It's not everything. It's a part. We are utilizing our spiritual gift by preaching the truth. But we all must take it and live it and make the Word of God obvious in our lives as we change. So our desire is to bring to you, bring you back to the foundations of your life. And today I'll bring you a message of uh, the chief end of man. Or in other words, God has a plan for your life. How would you feel if someone would come to you and say, well, listen, brother, I have a plan for your life. You just have to follow it. We would not feel necessarily welcoming because, you know, who are you? to tell me that you have a plan for my life. Every one of us has a plan for our own lives. At least we should. Because if you don't have a plan, a solid plan, worthy plan, then at some point you would be pretty disappoint, disappointed. It is like to going somewhere knowing not where are you going. At some point in your life you would say, well, I, where I am, what am I doing? What's the purpose? And I want to ask you this afternoon, what is your purpose in life? What do you live for? What makes you to get up every morning? What is the chief end of your life? And if you don't think about it and you train in the Sunday school way, you would say, well, to glorify God. But there's a lot into the statement, what is this? Personally, years ago, I hit a stall in my life when I thought, all right, I have a wife, I have two kids, I have a job, we just bought a new house, or old, new for us. And I was thinking, so what's next? Now, I know God told me to be fruitful and multiply, but I have limited resources, so I'll have two more kids, and then what? I still have the same question. What's the point? What's the purpose? Make more money, buy more houses, do more ministry. What, what is my purpose? And I don't remember when I considered that and prayed, they prayed really hard because it was a very dis disturbing not to know what God wants to do with me. And when I arrived at the point that God wanted to use me in a small way in a ministry to build his church, that was a great relief. That was just like the monkey 500-pound gorilla fell off my chest, and I know, and that was joy. That was great, joyful moment when I knew, God, I know what's the plan. I know what you want from me. R.C. Sproul, in his conversation with one of businessmen, he says that a businessman asked him, so R.C., what's the big idea? What is the big idea for the Christianity? What's the plan? What's the end game? Because without the plan and without a goal, a worthy goal, you are going nowhere. You are going nowhere. You're not achieving anything. And God has planned for our lives. So that's why the series. The series of sermons is what's the plan for your life personally? What is the plan for the church? What is the plan for different ministries in the church? And so I hope that God will bless us. So now to get to the very fundamental in the beginning, we have to go to the very first book of the Bible, the very first page of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Will you go there with me? We'll read and we pray and we'll navigate from there. Genesis chapter 1. Because in order to know what's the end game, you need to know the beginning. You need to know the story. 
and remind yourself a story. How you were you wired for the glory of God. How God created you and for what purpose in the beginning. Because when he laid the foundation of your DNA and your existence, he had a plan from the get-go. It is our fault that we forget. It is our fault that we devere from the plan. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. We'll read chapter 1 in its entirety and then pray. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and it separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning, a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetations, plants yielding seeds and fruit trees of the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seeds in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds after their kind and tree bearing fruit with seeds in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning, a third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for sign, and for seasons, and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. And let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creatures that moves. With which the waters swarmed after their kind. And every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the sea and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening. There was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruits yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast on the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth, which was life, I have given every green plant for food 
and it was so. God saw all that he has made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. That's the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We pray that you would grant us a clarity of scripture. And may the power of the Spirit move us into understanding what's the plan for our life. Bless me, humble me before the word, and make your word great, and Christ great, and me small. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, talking about the, the great plan for your life, the world's striving to have the plan. I, I, I happen to, to find a, a, a column by Cynthia Hamel. She's a columnist in the Village Voice, and that's uh, dated January 1990. And she writes, she's not a believer, but she writes very explicitly about the goal or end goal of people and how devastating it is for many. And she takes the example of celebrities. And she said, here's what I see in celebrities. Listen, said, I pity celebrities. No, I really do. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, and Barbara Strayson were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you a deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. You see, Sly, Bruce, and Barbara wanted fame. They work, they're pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because the giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened. And there were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and unsufferable. What she's saying is that they're striving for fame, glory, lots of money. But the problem is that the morning they wake up and the fame, wake up and their fame, they're still them. Nothing really happened. This is the, like, a, like a soap bubble that just bursts open and just shows that you have to have a worthy plan and God has it for us. And I believe that God didn't give us just an existence and then said, you figured out your meaning of life. Okay, now see how you're going to do it. He said, when I wired you, there was embedded plan for you. And we'll take this task from four points. I want to bring you this message, which is really uh, the proposition for today would be our greatest purpose in life is to delight into duty to be like God. Our greatest goal, our greatest achievement, our greatest purpose in life is to delight into duty to be like God. And I'll try to show it from these verses. We have a duty and the delight to be like God. In other words, it's just a different way to put the Westminster Catechism, shorter catechism, which answered the same question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is very simple. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, we'll take this task from four points. Number one, we have a dilemma. And I'll explain dilemma, whether we're glorifying God or enjoying him. Now we have a different problem. So we figured out what is the goal. It's to glorify and enjoy, but what is it? Number two, we'll show the delight. What is the delight and in what is delight? Number three, we'll look at the duty. And number four, we'll look at our hope. Now you notice those three are starting with D and the last one is H, I would easily put something like distress in something, but that doesn't, doesn't fit in the context. We need hope because after all of this that we're going to go over and after understanding our design and our purpose in life, we understand that we fail and we need hope. So let's take one by one, the dilemma. The dilemma is whether to glorify God or to enjoy Him. What is it? What are you striving for? Are you to enjoy God or are you to have duty. Let me give you an illustration. When God designed us, he embedded both of them together. He said, I want you to do stuff for me, but I want you to enjoy while you're doing. Let me give you an illustration. When a person, well, let's say a, a boy wants to meet a girl, 
and he wants to get married. Some of you are familiar with this situation. And he wants to pursue girl. Which one would she, should she do? Well, he understands his duty. He needs to marry her. And if he comes to her and says, well, here's a, here I have the wedding ring or engagement ring, and I understand my duty before God, given by God, solemn duty to marry, would you marry me? I was sure that she would ask, are you enjoying the process? Would you, do you love me? Do you like me? Or this is just a strictly duty. And if he would say, well, this is strictly duty. This is business. God told me this is my goal in life. I have to glorify God by doing things. I would not think for a moment that she would say yes. Right? On the other hand, if she would come and say, if he would linger around for a couple of years with roses and flowers and enjoy and delight, and he would say, well, listen, I'm so enjoying you, but would never take a step of duty to propose. At some point in life, after I would say probably a, a, a godly girl, after probably a couple of years, would say, well, you know what? I don't see the sense of duty in you, and I don't see that you're enjoying me, but it's not going nowhere. So those two, duty and delight, are inseparable. And what God created us, he created us to be and to work for him, but to enjoy him while we're doing this. In other words, it's a joyful duty to be at the disposal of God. And you can't separate one from another. For instance, a lot of people in the Christianity, in some false Christianity, they would call themselves joyers or enjoyers of God. And they would embrace with the wealth and, and, and health gospel, naming and claiming movement. And this movement would express itself the enjoyment time. One preacher embracing the type of faith says, if the mafia can ride around in the Lincoln town cars, why can't King's kids do the same? In other words, can we use God for our enjoyment and just do it? Wilbur Herbert, Will Herbert, he's a philosopher, he said, about 50 years ago, defining this American religiosity, he said, in this kind of religion, it is not man who serves God, but God who is mobilized and made so to serve man and his purposes. Whether these purposes be economic prosperity, free enterprise, social reform, democracy, happiness, security, or peace of mind. And then he adds in his book, Protestant, Catholic, and Jews, he said, what should reach down to the core of existence merely skims the surface of life and yet succeed in generating the sincere feeling of being religious? In other words, you could be all about joy and about enjoying God and forgetting what God has created you. In other words, if you just sold on on the duty part and on the glorifying God and doing everything for the glory of God, what you get is the theology without grace and get the religious legalism. But what happens if we emphasize only the glory of God? If we emphasize only the obligation to God? Faith in this type tends to become a grim legalism. Here following Jesus become a joyless burden. And Jesus told us, come in and I'll take this burden and I'll give you joy. Now the first thing I want to mention that God did a lot of stuff in this chapter. He did a lot of things. He did all things. And yet he was joyful in the process. He said, it is good. It is very good. He enjoyed the creation. He enjoyed the works of his hand. And yet he did it. And yet he did it for his glory. Now, this is our dilemma. But to glorify God in the real aspect, you cannot do it without enjoying him. In fact, I would say you have to enjoy him first. In other words, before you marry anyone, you have to enjoy that person. Before you believe in God, you have to have a new nature that enjoys God. Before you obey God's law, you have to enjoy the law. And then you have to do it. Our greatest purpose in life is to delight in the duty to be like God. Because God honored us with this. So that is a little bit of dilemma. God designed us, and it has a lot to do with our design, with our specific design, because God designed us for his glory in a very unique way. He made us into his image. That is the crux and the whole aspect of our pure existence. God made us for himself to reflect himself and to represent his name and the sovereignty on the earth. 
He made us for himself to reflect himself and to represent his sovereignty on the, in the natural world. And in this, you will find greatest joy. I'll finish one first point, this dilemma, by confession of Augustine. He's a great person. Everybody loves Augustine. And he was a great church father and pr- probably first theologian after Paul. He said this in, his, in the very first sentence of his confession. Great book. Recommend. It says this, Great art thou, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is thy power, and infinite is thy wisdom. And man desires to praise thee, for he is a part of thy creation. He bears his mor- 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 mortality about him and carries the evidence of sin and the proof that thou dost resist the proud. Still, man desires to praise thee. This man who is only a small part of thy creation, thou hast prompted him that he should delight to praise thee. For thou hast made us for thyself, and restless is our hearts until it come to rest in thee. Is really no dilemma. To be holy or to be joyful, you have to be joyfully holy, joyfully enjoying God, for you have known him. Now, the second point here, and we haven't got too much in the scripture, but we will in a second. Our delight is to portray God's nature. God designed you to reflect his nature. And this is both very unique and very special. Very unique and very special. We are designed to reflect God's holiness, God's character like no one else. Like no one else in creation. No one else come even close. The tree, the rabbits, the kings of the jungle, no one else comes even close. You are unique in God's creation for a unique purpose to glorify God by resembling him in his nature. You would say, what's so special about us? We were created from the dust, same as the beasts of the earth. And yes, for sure, in yourself, in ourselves, in our DNA, there's nothing special. You put us apart, we're just a bunch of chemicals. Yes, but assigning value to us by God and creating us for a specific purpose to represent his nature, that is a great distinction. What's so special about us? Nothing really, apart the fact that God assigned a special role for us to play and reflect his nature, we're no different from the beasts. But now God assigned it and he created in his image. Now, Look at this from the context. Man was created on the last day, on the very dawn of all creation. On the first day, he created uh, just the light, created and separated darkness. On the second day, he created atmosphere and separated the waters from above, water from the below. On the third day, he created greenery and vegetation and plants and shrubs and, and rest of the vegetation created by God. On the fourth day, he created sun and the moon, and he makes the distinction and the time, the day, and the seasons. He separated that, and all was holy, and it was glorious, and everything is glorifying God in the process. On the fifth day, he created fish and the birds, and he created them from the water. They, that's why they taste alike, right? They created from the same stuff. But, and he told them, you know, this is the first commandment in the, in the Bible to the fishes and to the into the fish. He said, be fruitful and multiply. On the sixth day, he created mammals and creeping things and all the animals of the earth and were created after its kind. Now, when he creates man, there's a specific distinction. If you would find that this phrase, like for instance, in verse 12, you said, they were created vegetation after their kind and after their kind in the seed in them. And then when he cre- created the, 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 the fish and the the birds, he said, birds after their kind, its kind, and the swarming creatures after their kind. And when he created in verse 23, verse 24, the creature, living creature of the earth after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. In verse 25, God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind. And, e- and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. You see this repeating phrase, but when you come to verse 26, it says, then God said, I'm not going to create after its kind. I'm going to create something very special. I'm going to create after my kind. I'm going to create in my 
image, in our image, in our likeness, not in the kind of the beasts. And in fact, man is not created like anything else in that sense. He created at a dawn of creation as a pinnacle of creation, as a culmination of God's creation because it was created after the kind of God, the image and the likeness of God. Now, when you think about yourself on a bad rainy day, when you are barely have enough power to get out and roll over your bed, you can't even make your bed. And you think like, what is the purpose and what's the point? Remember this, meditate on your, on your bed that you were created for a very special task to reflect God's nature like no one else, no one else in the universe. Now the heavens are displaying the glory of God. The heavens are telling the glory of God and the expanse is declaring the works of his hand. But heaven fall short of the glory of God as man. The earth, Lord, how many are your works in Psalm 104. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. They're all glorifying you. But earth is fall in comparison of what man was designed to do. All works in Psalm 104, verse 31, 32 says, Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. He looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. But he said, but I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. Listen, everything claps. Everything rejoices. Everything brings glory to God. But it is you and I who open our mouths to praise God. And it is worship that God accepts. The animals glorifying God, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, but it is the people whom I am formed for my will declare my praise. You know, if you ever been at the Great Canyon, we are planning to go there. I've seen picture pictures. It's very amazing. But I would, amaze my, uh, I would imagine myself standing by the edge, at the edge of Great Canyon and contemplating on my own worth. It's really hard. It's really pathological to my, my self-worth to think about my grandiose design into, in light of these big rocks. If I look at the August starry sun, uh, starry, uh, the sky full of, Stars. It is hard for me to think that I am worth of something. I'm so small. I'm so insignificant. And I am insignificant. But because of God's design for me, he made me really significant to reflect his nature. No star come into comparison. God designed this us in unique way in all creation. With all its beauty, Great Canyon, Alps, and sky full of galaxy cannot reflect the glory of God as you and me. We are unique in God's creation. The fact that God created us in his image and in his likeness, and we need to understand what that means a little bit. It tells us that we reflect God in very specific ways. Now, these words that we see in verse 26, these words, man in our image and according to our likeness, they're very interesting words. But the bottom line of them, for instance, image would say it's, it's a dream. The word for image, often it's either dream or some kind of illusion or breath or a shadow. In other words, if you have some pillar or you could see the shadow from me, that would be the image. You see the image projecting here? That is not a real thing. That's a projection. So God created us in his projection. We are the screens for God to reflect him, not ourselves, not our worth, but his worth and his glory. The same word for likeness or demut translated the resemblance, sometimes physical representation of something that is spiritual. For instance, people did a lot of idols and make the idols of something. And they were not dumb to, to worship some kind of stone or the wood. They understand that this piece of thing represents something spiritual, something powerful, something beautiful, or scary. So God created you and me to represent here. 
And in this sense, if you flip just one page, a couple of pages, to Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 and 3, we'll see that this is exactly what God is talking about. When we procreate and give life to our children, we create in them, so to speak, into our likeness, into our image. Chapter 5 says, for in this book of generation of Adam, this is the book of generation of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. But check this out in verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son. In his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. In other words, like a father, like a son. He created or he gave birth Exact representation. It was a different person, but he represent the nature of Adam. Same thing God. When he created us, he created us to represent him. One illustration that probably would help you. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? He had a dream, and Daniel come and told him the, the meaning of the dream. And immediately, he had a Nebuchadnezzar moment. He had a couple of those in, in his history. And Nebuchadnezzar moment is when you think about yourself so worthy, so great that you want to exalt yourself. What did Nebuchadnezzar did after this dream when he saw the statue? He made a golden statue and it's very big. In Daniel, we read that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and it was six cubits, really tall, really skinny. He set it in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. This province of Babylon in Russian language doesn't sound really good. Because, and it became a field of Nebuchadnezzar's game of throne when he wanted to exalt himself. He made a statue. And if you would guess, just to take a wild guess, what would he want to portray by this statue? Now, the text doesn't tell, but I am 99% sure that on the top of the statue was some kind of representation of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Remember the golden head that he saw? He made this big statue. And it's natural for the ancient king to create and erect the statues of themselves. Why? To represent the fame, the glory, the power, the authority. So that this five-foot or six-foot person, you can't see him from afar, but you could see his statue. And you could worship him. And he ordered, as soon as you hear a bunch of music, loud music, you do what? You bow down and worship to the statue. Now, God forbid us to make any statues, real or not real, representation of God. He forbid to do any statues of God himself. Why? In chapter 40, verse 18 of Isaiah, he said, to whom would you liken me? And the idea is that there's no comparison. There's no comparison for me. You can't really represent, except that God already created an image and a likeness and a statue, a living one to represent his name. And this is you. He already made a statue, an idol, if you will, of himself to represent his nature through all the earth. That is a value. That is a sign role, and that is a reflection of the image. But what is that reflects also? So we are the living statues of God. We represent his nature. How do we practically do that? And I believe that God created us in to be a rational, moral, and relational being. Rational, moral, relational being like no one else. God is rational being with an amazingly complex ability to think logically, right? God is never confused, never. When he created everything, everything was ordered. He is never confused about anything. In other words, he doesn't get up one day in the morning and say, well, I'm really confused. How did I get here? Sometimes you may feel this. After 20 years of marriage, you say, well, how did I get here? How has this happened? How I end up in this mess? Right? God doesn't have this. He's all logical and worthy in his ability. He never confused about anything. He's extremely logical being. And God created us in his image, assigning us logic like he is. Even atheists today, 
in order to argue against the existence of God, they have to use the logic that there is no God to prove that there's no God. It's like trying to prove that there's no air, you have to take another breath, right? Being made in the image and the likeness of God means that we represent his abilities, cognitive abilities. We know how to argue. If you have a teenager, you have just been reminded about how much this cognitive ability they have. When you have little kids, they don't ask questions why. They ask what. They ask what is this, what is this, what is this. But as soon as they turn in teenager, they have this cognitive ability, rationally think about everything and question you why. Why do we have to go there? Why should I go to school? Why should I wash my you know, clothes and stuff? They ask and why. And this is good. You might think that's bad. No, that's a representation of God's nature. He made them this way. Now, they might do it, use, use it sinfully, but still, it is our ability. When God created Adam, he gave them cognitive ability to think. Now, Adam was not dumb. We all know that. There's no caveman age, period, right? There, there was nothing. That Adam was not responding to God, uh, mm, mm. He spoke. Logically, clearly, he spoke. He understood what God asked him to do. In fact, he spoke so well when he, when he saw Eve, he started bursting out poems, right? He just started praising, praising Eve and so eloquent. He said, this is now my bones of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. They're very, he, he was very logical. He understand. In fact, he named all the animals. Just imagine that. You type in next time the password, asking you to create new password, and, and, and you, have, you stall. Like, okay, what the password? And the problem is not what the password would be, because you could create. The problem, you're going to forget it. Adam named all the animals, and he didn't forget them. That's an incredible thing. Ability to think, to remember. That's how we represent God. In fact, the society was so progressive. They created the brick. They started a building named for themselves in Babylonian Tower. They created the musical instrument. There was empires. There were cities. It was great abilities given by God. Just a couple of, probably last week we went to Chicago. One of my, you know, I, I enjoy the city. And enjoy the ability of humankind to create stuff. Like create massive buildings. Like tons of tons of rock piled upon one another into skyscrapers. It's amazing ability given by God, logically thinking, math, the science, and all things has come from God. Monkey don't do those things. They don't build the cities, right? Dogs, they don't create the poems. They don't express the love. Humans do. Humans build cathedrals. Humans build, build and, and create music. Humans praise God because they were designed to do so. We reflect God by being moral. Being moral. I like how C.S. Lewis gives an example of moral pirate. He said, pirates appear to be an exception to have a moral codex in their conscience. Because they do, all they do is lie and steal. You know, the motto of the pirate, pirate is take what you can and give nothing back. But he said, however, try stealing from a pirate and you would quickly dissolve uh, discovered that he thinks stealing is wrong. Because God created us and he put the compass, a moral compass in us. All people, that's what's wrong and what's right. In Romans chapter 2, verse 11, 16, we see this. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternate accusing or else defending them. You see, God gave us a moral ability. When lion chases antelope and eats it and leaves her calves without mom, he doesn't share a tear. He doesn't care. 
He does what God told him to do. We do. That is why we're all against abortion, against all slavery, against a racial, racial discrimination, because what God put us in our heart, the sense of justice, rational ability, moral codex. And it's not just from culture to culture. It is everywhere. God created us evil. Because he created us, he alone, he created us in the image of God. We resemble those things. It doesn't matter what color you have. It doesn't matter what family you belong to, what race and what, what social structure you, you find yourself. You're equal before God because you were created in God's image. But the one that I really like is that created us being relational being. As I study for this, I ask my little one, and I say, well, let me test this shorter catechism on her. So what she come up with? And I said, well, honey, who created you? And I know she knows. She said, God. And I asked, well, why did he create you? You know what she answered? Her answer blew me away, right? She said, because he loved me. Because he loved me. God created us. And so profound. So simple. So profound. It takes the theologians to come to the conclusion. But it takes a little child to understand. When God created us, he created us to love. He created us to love and to give us ability to love him back and love other people. He created us for relational aspect. He, in a sense here, the first personal pronoun in plural we see in verse 26, then God said, in fact, the distinction with all creation, when God created all things, he didn't have a consul, divine consul. He said, well, just I'm, I'm going to create this and this and this. But when we come to a man, he said, let's call the conference table. And let us create a man. Father consulted with his son and the spirit of what they're going to do. And he said, we're going to create in a relational aspect like we are. Eternity past, we're so happy, so joyful, so glorious in this relationship. We want to create someone like us so that he could share, they could share the same aspect of relationship, loving, kind, mercy, gentleness. And that is the glory. So God said, let us create in our image like we are, in plurality, someone who could relate. And it's not that God desired for someone to love, like he was so single God, God and he just... You know, look for someone to love in the world. And he created all, all things and he couldn't find, like, like Adam, couldn't find his helper, right? That's not the point. God didn't, God was perfectly happy. He didn't need you and me. He created you and me to assign you value so that you could enjoy him and he could love you and you could experience his love, but he didn't need you. So God created us for being in relationship. He made us, the whole Trinity decided to make the man and to make him with the ability to relate to other people like he does. He created to love you. In Jeremiah 31, 3, this is an amazing verse. It says, the Lord appeared to him, to Israel, from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Isn't that amazing? that God created you in his image so that he could love you. And as he created us, he made us in ability, gave us ability to love God. Remember Matthew chapter 22, when the lawyer came to Jesus and he said, what is the greatest commandment? What Jesus answered, he asked him a question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus' words are commands for what? For relationship. He commanded to relate to God. He said, you can't do anything else. He commanded to love your God and love your neighbor as yourself. What is this? It's a relational aspect. No cat, no lion, no dog is required to love God. Do you know that? But man is. You know, dogs seems like they can't figure it out, right? They, they love us and they, they want to be around us. Cats, doesn't, they, they don't care. We have a cat just occasionally walks in and, and comes. A couple of days later, we, we see. They, they know. We're not, we're not required to love you. We just 
by ourselves. But God does not require from anyone else, neither from angels for as far as I know. He didn't require our angel of, uh, archangel of Michael, Michael to love him. He said, obey, and that's all. But from you, he does. That is a reflection of his image. Human beings reflect God's image by loving God and loving others. That is why we can't kill people, just like right and left. It is because the image of God in them, and you're killing people as representatives of God, you are liable before God. That is why James 3.9 says you can't curse people. Because you can't do that blessed with the same tongue people whom created in the image of God and cursed them at the same time. It shouldn't be this way. That is why our, all our basic of sanctification is to renew ourselves in the image of God which was lost and mourned. In Ephesians 4.29 says, and put on a new self, self that was created after the likeness of God in true righteousness, in holiness. You see, God's image in you is, shines through you as you act and be like God. Now, is this a joyful duty or what? Now, this is a fact. God didn't tell you to do anything yet. He just told you how he created you. He created you in his image. That's it. That's a statement of fact. The second part is the duty. This is the delight. This is just pure joy. We were created so amazingly to represent God like no one else. And we want to glorify him by being moral, rational, relational being. And then yet, he gave us a task to do. Now we're going to the task. What should I do, Lord? And the task is very simple. Duty to proclaim God's sovereignty. That's point number three. And we're out of time, I believe, right? Our duty to proclaim God's sovereignty. We are called to spread the sovereignty of the, of the Lord throughout the world. And it's so obvious from the text because when God created an image of God, man, and both he created men and women equally, he said, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle of the, and over all the earth and over every creeping things that creeps on the earth. In the chapter 2, verse 15, he said, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. What does God require of you? As he made you representative of his nature, now he wants to represent his sovereignty. Whatever we appear, on a stage of human history, human, we represent, this is God's world. This is his design. We're workers in his kingdom. We are his people and we resemble in him. And so you, everyone around should submit to this God because we're working for him. That's the rule. That's the authority. The authority in itself now is never given to us to exalt ourselves. Every king, as soon as he become king, he subdue everyone to serve him. God said, no, I make you king of the world, but you're my core regent who's going to reign for me. I'm absent in the body, but I'm present in you, through you. I want you to represent me well. That is a great duty. That is a sovereignty. We glorify God by exercising sovereignty of God in the world. God said, listen, my name is majestic in all the earth. And I'm going to make you my representative. Representative to cultivate and subdue. Now, pretty quickly, how do I apply this subduing the world? Like you would say, well, I don't have a garden and I'm not particularly, you know, I don't have a zoo to kind of rule over the old animals. What do I do? Well, let me start simply. For some of us, making our bed is, is subduing, right? Sometimes I've, I've, felt peop- I've, I've seen people so depressed, so depressed, that the, the most glorious thing that they could ever do for a day is to get up and make their bed. That is the glorious subduing of your bed. For some of us, making construction, whatever, remodeling of the house. So some of you being engineer, you are representing God. Don't forget who are you representing. 
You're representing the mighty, glorious God and you spread in his word and his name upon the world. We shouldn't be like a bad steward who has granted many things, but they utilize an inner drunkenness and just debauchery, use everyone for their own glory. We are use everything. The situation that you're in, the environment, we have to utilize it for the common good of people. For that's what God has sent us to do. Listen, this is God's world, and we are God's representative. We don't have our own authority. We don't operate by authority of ourselves or our value. We operate under authority of creator. We work for him and by his rules. And his rules are simple. Love people, do good, work hard, share with the poor, make the best of the environment. I place you here. Psalm 96.3 goes even further. Proclaim me. He said, declare his glory among the nations. Tell him who's the boss. Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 16.31 says, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. So what is our duty and what is our delight? Our delight is that we were created in a special way to function and represent God. Our duty is to take this sovereignty of God and bring it, everything, under dominion of God. How do we do? Well, we need a fourth point because we don't do good. As far as I read in my Bible, in Romans 3.23 It says that all have sinned and what? And fall short of the glory of God. Short. We fall very short of the standard. Adam led us into it. In third chapter, we are all mess. We ran after our own God. Illustration of God. We went to become like God. We enthrone ourselves in our lives. And we strive to make ourselves great, thinking that would bring us happiness. The solution is really in Christ. He is the image bearer of God. He is the only one who could do the things for us. He did two things. First, he became the true representation of God's nature. And then he became a true ruler on earth. On Hebrews, it says, He is the radiance of his glory in exact representation of his nature and upholds all things but the world word of his power. That's number one. He became the representation how God made men to be. The second thing he said, he become perfect sovereign ruler. You have put all things in subjection under his feet for in subjection all things to him. He left nothing that is not subject to him. He is worthy to do so. Now listen. Jesus died on the cross for our salvation. True. Jesus did the redemption of our souls. He delivered us from the wrath and the hell of God. True. The cross of Christ, he delivered us from the misery of death and give us life. He saved us from the deadness of our sin, full nature, and give us life with God. Now, Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 testifies about it and you know it well it says by for by grace you have been saved through faith and that is not over yourselves god saved you god redeemed you god restored you it is the gift of god not as a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for what for good works which god prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. When God created you, originally, he prepared the work to do, to be his representative, and we fail. Christ came down, saved us from our sins, from the wrath, why? To restore us to the original position, that we will be a true representative of Christ and true rulers upon the earth for him. Next time you're depressed, Feel sorry for yourself. I find myself sometimes. Remember, you're you're a creation of God created in a very unique way to represent God in a very, very unique, unique way. You're a child of God, saved by the blood of Christ, 
There's nothing insignificant about your position and your purpose. You're not supposed to wander aimlessly in life, not knowing why you're in and where you're going. You have a privilege to represent the most high God. He has created you. He has saved you for himself. He allowed you to receive his divine nature. As Peter say, why? To proclaim the excellencies of his name. Is that a worthy aim? And Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then also will be revealed in him with glory. I'll finish with the story. Kind of culmination of this duty is very joyful. It starts with joy, understanding who you are, and then never ends. If you find yourself in a ministry and that you're dragging the net with full of rocks, you know, just... I have to do it, you know, but I really don't want to. You have to go back and say, okay, what is my privilege? I've been privileged into being created in the image of God, right? And this duty is never should be, never not joyful. If you know David Livingston, born in 1813, after finishing his doctrine studies, he went to Africa as a missionary. He went to Africa in the 1840s, and he served for eight years ministering to African people. And after eight years, he had the first and the only convert, African convert, eight years of ministry. And then he figured out, unless he would map the Africa, and, and see where the rivers are so that he could make highways from rivers and bring the gospel across and, and deliver the missionary work, he would not succeed. And so the rest of his life, he spent just mapping Africa so that he would pave the way for the gospel to come in. Now, he suffers many things. One of the things that he was bitten by lions, survived, he, he ended up dying from malaria. But check out what, he's, what he wrote. He said, never, I have never made a sacrifice. He said, for my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity? The consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of glorious destiny hereafter? After with the word in such a view, and away with such a word in such a view, and with such a thought, it is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger, now and then, with the foregoing of the common convenience and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sing. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us for us. You have been privileged to serve a living God, represent his name, and reflect his nature. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for an amazing privilege. Where did we get this idea, a pagan really idea, that honoring God and serving God is an unpleasant, it is almost a mortar doing work. Lord, help us to see that Christian living, duty, and delight go together. They do. It is when we forget whom we represent. The most worthy, most glorious, most amazing person who brought us in into a sinus role, then the burden became light. When we understand that we're created to love God, who loves us much, we are able to do the job with joy. 
Help us, Lord. Bless us in this achieving of this goal, knowing that apart from Christ, we could do nothing. But because of Christ, who lives in us, now you paved the way and you showed the example and also made us able to serve a living God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.